Welcome new and returning listeners to Gal on the Go Unplugged. Kicking off season three of the show, I am thrilled to have the insightful Claire St. Amant, renowned host of the true crime podcast, Final Days on Earth. Claire previously worked for CBS News' 48 Hours and covered stories on an assassination attempt on a judge, a serial killer, and a murder-for-hire sting, just to name a few. She was also part of the Breaking News team nominated for an Emmy in 2016 for Bringing a Nation Together, a special report on the Dallas police shooting. In 2019, she began contributing to 60 Minutes with the Ranger and the Serial Killer. To say that Claire's perfect for hosting a true crime podcast is an understatement. I first met Claire through a podcast academy event, and I was instantly drawn to her positive energy and inquisitive mindset. Hey, Claire. Hey, Kimberly. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for coming on Unplugged and launching our season three. Uh, Let's dive right into our conversation today. Your podcast, Final Days on Earth with Claire St. Demont, has an international following with over 1.4 million downloads. What inspired you to transition from traditional news media to hosting a true crime podcast? And, you know, how has your previous experience influenced your current role as a host? So when I started out, you know, in local media, I was writing maybe 300 word stories about, you know, whatever the news of the day was. And then once I ended up, you know, at at 48 hours, I had a whole hour of television to to tell a story. And it felt like an eternity. But uh, as I soon learned, there's so much that goes on in complicated murder investigations that many times an hour is not actually long enough to tell the story. And once you put in commercial breaks, you really only have 42 minutes of you know, actual scripted like television time. And so I, I started to get interested in these cases that didn't fit in the TV box. And, you know, they were getting passed over for an episode of 48 Hours because they were too complicated, because we didn't have enough time to talk about the nuances of the case. We needed something more cut and dry. We needed to know who the killer was. We needed to, you know, make sure that we could tie everything up in a bow, you know, in in 40 minutes or less. And so the podcast was a way to talk about cases that were, I, I said, they're not black and white, they're gray. Uh, so the podcast allows me to to really dive deep on cold cases and, you know, follow the story wherever it takes me. Well, I love that you had obviously like a passion for your work and you took it to a level like, you know, drawing it on the side and saying, OK, what can I do with this and creatively coming up with a way to, you know, like extend the story in in a really cool way that would present it in the proper like format and timing 
Yeah, I had been a, a listener of podcasts from, you know, early days. Of course, everyone who who gets into true crime podcasting, you know, has listened to Serial, has listened to Dirty John, Dr. Death, you know, the classics. And so I had just always seen that as a, you know, I was a consumer of that kind of content. Um, and it it wasn't until, you know, someone ended up reaching out to me uh, who was developing true crime podcasts and said, you know, we'd like to have more female hosts for true crime podcasts. And, you know, we're curious about if you've ever thought of, of hosting one. And I hadn't, you know, and it was it was kind of a funny aha moment for me because I was like, why hadn't I thought of doing this? This would, you know, I, I I'm like, have my podcast feed full of shows that I'm listening to and loving. But, uh, you know, it's it's kind of one of those things where sometimes it it doesn't occur to you until it does. And then you're, you know, I, I recognize a good idea when I hear one. So, you know, I was off to the races with it. Well, it's a perfect pick and it's got to be, you know, nice to be able to get out what you probably keep inside when you did listen to other true crime podcasts. And you're like, oh, I'd love to weigh in on this or that, but like I can't. And now you get to share it. And that's like really cool. Okay. So, of all the true crime stories that you've covered, which one has stayed with you and had the most significant impact to you and why so? Well, you know, asking me about like my favorite true crime story is like asking a mother about her favorite child. You know, it's it's they all mean something to me, you know, so it is really hard to choose. Uh, I would have to say, you know, the cases that have stuck with me the most um, are the unsolved ones, you know, the one where the families are still looking for justice, where they don't have the answers that they should to, you know, to really be able to to move on in some way. Um, you know, I think a lot of people talk about there's not real closure for victims of, of violent crime. You know, it's it's a myth. But I've seen the difference that um, you know, a solved case versus an unsolved case, it's much easier to accept that your loved one, you know, is gone even in a, a tragic way. If you can say that you know what happened to them, you know, it, at least some basic facts. And so, you know, the case that that is fresh on my mind right now is the unsolved murder of Jennifer Harris. And it's a case that went down in 2002. Um, so, you know, the the facts of the case have been out there for a really long time. She was a young woman who went missing on Mother's Day and, you know, was never seen alive again after, after leaving a friend's house. And her body was found about a week later in the Red River. Authorities have been trying to solve her murder ever since, uh, you know, unsuccessfully. And her family has really taken to heart you know this case and and the desire to have it solved and they've done everything that a victim's family can do you know from hiring private investigators to lobbying politicians to you know um working with you know sheriffs that come and go through the office to try to find a way to solve this crime a big hurdle for the crime is that the body was found in water and so a lot of the DNA testing, um, you know, even though there's been lots of DNA advances, you know, in the last 20 years, water is still 
quite effective in getting rid of evidence. And so they have not been able to have any DNA evidence to point to a suspect. They have a lot of circumstantial evidence. One might say a mountain of circumstantial evidence against, uh, you know, a suspect in this case. But thus far, the sheriff and the DA have not made an arrest or, or brought a case to a grand jury. Um, and it, it continues to to haunt the family. You know, most criminals are very dumb. Most most people that commit crimes, they're not smart. But the outliers, you know, the 1% that really think about how to get away with a crime and cover their tracks and do two, three, four things to confuse investigators, you know, I think there will always be evil ingenuity to get around, you know, the latest technology. You know, in Jennifer's case, uh, after she was killed, she was stripped naked. She was thrown into the river and there was a fire on the riverbanks that night and her purse and clothes have never been found. Um, so it's believed that they were burned in that fire. So something as simple as as fire and water, you know, has has basically destroyed every evidence, you know, in this case, other than the fact that her body was found by a fisherman. Um, and that was, you know, something that they were able to rule the case a homicide. Otherwise, you know, she would she would be a missing person. You know, the, the case would would still be you can have someone declared dead, but it, without a body, it's even harder, you know, to prosecute. So there is still hope in this case, just because there is a body and there is a very determined family to get justice. But, you know, I, I, I think there'll always be ways to to link a crime to a to a perpetrator, even though the technology is always changing and the criminal minds always changing. But, you know, from an investigative perspective, you know, I, I find it fascinating what um, you know, deeply disturbing, but also fascinating what people will do and, you know, how how some people really do get away with murder. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Is there an unsolved case that if you could interview anyone from an unsolved case, um, who would it be and why? So I think the the unsolved case that has fascinated me the most is the John Bonet Ramsey case. And I know I'm not alone in that that fascination. You know, I think it was one of those cases that, you know, I was very young. Uh, it happened in the 90s and I'm a 80s baby. Uh, so I was young, but I remember her being on the cover of People magazine, you know, with her blonde curls. And um, I remember asking my mom, why is that little girl on the magazine, you know, and and finding out that she'd been murdered. It was it was so shocking. And to think that that crime has still gone unsolved and they they have various uh, witnesses and and people that they believe, you know, could shed light on that case. I mean, I I don't know if there's one particular person I'd want to interview, but I would love to to be able to look at that case file uh, like in full. You know, I think that would be fascinating. And the. um you know, the parents have always been under suspicion and they have fought so hard to say uh, that they had nothing to do with that case, you know, nothing to do with with the murder of their child. And it's just it's one of those that I think everyone has a theory on. And I've talked to different investigators and journalists and, you know, everyone sort of thinks they know who who did it. Right. And they have they have their list of reasons why. But, you know, I mean, if that 
if that if there was one case that could be solved, I would love to see that one solved to know, you know, really what happened. That's a good one, because that's one that I found. And I don't know, again, if it was because little girl to little girl, you know, when I was growing up that I was also intrigued by. So having covered such intense cases, what have you learned about the nature of crime and the justice system that may surprise people? You know, I'm continually impressed by how resilient people are and that, you know, no one knows what tomorrow holds. No one knows what's around the corner. There is an ability, uh, you know, I, I consider it a, a supernatural you know, spiritual ability to persevere even through the worst of circumstances, the worst that that life can bring. And I I have really been surprised and impressed and encouraged by people who have suffered unbelievable tragedy and have not lost their joy, their spark, their lightness, you know, overall for life. You know, of course, this is going to completely change how you know you you operate but there's a way to to hold on to the light to not give into the dark to know that better days are coming and you know i i i find that very encouraging and it it helps me you know in my light momentary troubles to remember that people have overcome so much more i talk to this i i talk about this you know with with my own son just how cuz he you know like kids will say life isn't fair that's not fair and i'm like that is a unbelievably true statement for everyone you know like life is not fair and we don't know what hand we're going to be dealt and you know we have to find a way to Make the most of of the life that we have here, uh, you know, on Earth, and and some people some people have it easier than others, but it's it's incredible to me to see what people can, you know, overcome and how they can still enjoy life even when something, you know, the most unbelievably unfair thing can happen to them, having you know someone that they love senselessly killed. For someone like you specifically, who's immersed in true crime so much. For you to still have the positive outlook based on victims' attitudes and stuff, I think that speaks volumes because I think you could probably get very easily like drawn down or bummed, you know, with given all that. But you choose to see how people are resilient and, you know, that brighter side of you know, the hope in the future and getting out of those circumstances. That's really cool. I think, you know, one of the things that I've I've said to myself and and has kind of become like a mantra for me is, you know, be grateful for for every day that doesn't end in disaster, because, you know, for someone else down the street on the other side of the world, you know, anywhere, it, it could have been the worst day of their life. But, you know, just the little things, you know, the the sun rises each morning and and the people that you love are still around you like be grateful for that um because you know there're plenty of people that that don't have you know that simple simple pleasure well i think that's a good reminder to everybody what goes into creating an episode of final days on earth and how do you pick which cases you want to feature on your show so every episode is written out, you know, ahead of time. I I do all my interviews and then I I edit them down and I I cut it together with narration. 
mostly because I'm talking to people about these cases. And sometimes I, I will talk to a single person, you know, a single interview can go on for, you know, one or two hours. And I'm going to interview maybe three or four people in the episode. So I don't, I, I've got loyal listeners, but I'm not sure they would stick with me for, you know, four or five hours. So I have to be judicious in what I, what I put in my script. But, um, you know, I start with, you know, just an overall outline for the season because it's an investigative show. I want to make sure I go through all aspects of each case. And so I, I outline it out and I figure out, you know, um, who are going to be my key characters? Who am I going to interview? You know, I look for, I say the final days on earth universe is unresolved crimes, uh, where a key figure within the case that's not me is saying justice has not been served. And so that can, you know, manifest itself in a, in many different ways. In my first season, it was, you know, a young man's father uh, who believed that his son uh, had not killed himself. And so the the case has been ruled a suicide, and he's adamant that that there's more to the story and that uh, there was foul play in his son's death. And so that's a uh, fascinating and tragic case that has so many layers. I think I ended up doing 20 episodes on that. Uh, It was supposed to be 10, but I kept finding more people to interview. People were contacting me, just coming out of the woodwork, wanted to talk about this case. And so I, I ended up expanding it and including a, interviews with with various forensic experts, um, including uh, Dr. Claire Ferguson, who's a, a criminologist in Australia, who's become one of my favorite reoccurring guests. I'm going to have her on every season. She's so great. And so she talked about the features of staged crimes, crime scenes, uh, and how Damien's crime scene was like a staged crime scene and and how it wasn't and, you know, what she saw. And it was, it was fascinating. But um, I plan out to get back to your question, I plan out my episodes for the most part, but I I love being able to go wherever the story leads me, say, well, we're going to tack on, you know, another bonus episode. We're going to, you know, do something. Um, we're just going to do a Q&A episode. We're just going to do a single interview episode as the story dictates. And, um, you know, I find it really satisfying to be able to do that. Based on learning that from your first one, do you always keep it fluid now? Like because of learning that and that way, you know, gives you some flexibility to take it to where you never expected necessarily to take it? Yeah. You know, I think if you're doing your job as a reporter, you're going to end up somewhere that you didn't you didn't know existed. Right. Because you're going to learn things along the way. So I, I find it very you know, exciting and invigorating to dive into a case and have all my assumptions questioned and think like, oh my gosh, I never thought about this possibility. And let's let's charge into this, you know, theory and and just see see where you know we go with it. And so I've I've really enjoyed doing that, you know, with my first two seasons and I'm working on a third season that's going to come out this spring that I'm I'm really excited about. Yeah, you know, there's sadly <laughs> no shortage of unsolved baffling murders in this world. I have a, a very long list of cases that I'm interested in doing, you know, a, a season on um, and I'm, I'm just sort of working my way through them. But I have 
through my time at at CBS News and 48 Hours, I had a lot of cases that that I worked on that really stuck with me and especially like where I forged relationships with the victims' families and in those instances where the cases weren't solved, I feel like I've sort of become a lifeline to a lot of these families as like the last reporter who still cares, who still calls them on the anniversary, who still wants to know if there's anything that can be done, if there are any new avenues for investigation. And, you know, the nature of the beast with news is you're always looking for something new. You're looking for the next story. You're looking for the breaking story. You're looking for, you know, what what's on the docket today. A lot of these cases just fall through the cracks, not only for journalists, but for police departments, too. And so I get a lot of satisfaction out of having a show that that looks at uh, the cases that people aren't thinking about anymore and, you know, have have been forgotten. I think that's incredible because if you're on the other end of that and you're one of the family members to know there's someone like you out there that has such a passion for it and you mix that with care. And the fact that you understand that someone could be left hanging and you 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 want them to know you're you're there just to even say, how you doing? Like as simple as a gesture as that. That's pretty amazing. So, OK, do you have a favorite aspect of true crime, too? Meaning, like, is it true crime overall that you're intrigued by or is it an element of it or Yeah, I mean, really unsolved crimes, I think, you know, ones where it feels like there's a way to move the needle. There's something that can still be done and trying to identify what remaining avenues for investigation are left and putting together a lot of times if it's a really small town police department and they're overwhelmed and they, you know, they haven't worked a murder before, there isn't even a good timeline on the case, which is investigating 101, right? Who, what, where, when, right? And so putting together a timeline on it and a lot of times whenever you do that, you know, you start to see what looks suspicious. What are the outliers? Who who are these last people they were talking to? Where were they, you know, the last time that we could actually put a dot on a map and say they were definitely here at this time because, you know, we have this cell phone ping or we have this ATM charge or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, I find that really rewarding to be able to bring these people back to life in in a way where we can recreate, you know, their their final days on earth and look for clues, you know, for to explain why they died. Your category of true crimes and unsolved mysteries are, it's hot, you know, it's uh, one of the top topics in podcasting and just in general, actually, socially. What aspect of that genre do you think appeals to other people? And how does true crime storytelling contribute to public awareness and understanding of the criminal justice system? Yeah, you know, I think it's a couple of different factors. I think there's definitely a female fascination with crime. It it tends to skew female. And I believe, and I'm not the only one, you know, that that has a lot to do with the fact that we're most likely to be victims of violent crime. And so, like, a smart evolutionary skill is to study things that might harm us, right? So we we are 
conditioned to think about as women, uh, as girls, think about danger, you know, from a very young age in a way that that most boys and men aren't. And so I think it's natural that we would be interested in women who were victims of crime because we see ourselves as we have the potential to be, you know, we're vulnerable. We could be in these same positions. Why not us? Why why am I still here? And this other woman, you know, was was violently taken. And so I think we're as for women, I think that that definitely plays uh, into it. You know, just as a society, especially, you know, American society, we don't talk about death in a lot of circles like it's pretty common right your your kid's pet dies and you just buy a new one right you're just going to replace it rather than have the conversation everything you love will die one day right that's that's a big downer so i think people think of it as like a safe way to look at death to think about death which is of course we're fascinated by because no one gets out alive of course we're fascinated by it and i do think you know we're getting better as parents, as, you know, a society, as a culture in talking about death and recognizing that it is a natural part of life and it will come for us all, you know, whether it's a, a violent end or a natural one. And so I think as we we begin to have those conversations more like in a healthy, you know, way, not like an avoidance of pretending like, you know, the <laughs> the fish will just come back in the bowl, right? think that that true crime will, you know, coverage and everything will evolve with that, too. You know, some of the the most well-adjusted, you know, victims, families that I've talked to have have said things like, um, you know, I had 32 years with my son. Some people don't get that long. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible, you know, like to be able to say that because this person was just violently killed. They did nothing wrong, you know, and to be able to be grateful for the 32 years that that she did have. And, you know, I, I think that we all have to recognize that, you know, we have a, an unknown number of days and, and you know, we, we try to make the most of them and be grateful for them and to appreciate the people, you know, that are in our lives for, for however long we have them. I think that's a great point, you know, growing up that generation that things were just not spoken about, like, and that's probably why a lot of things also were hard to solve because people were terrified to speak up. And now we're such a bolder society. We're intrigued more. We speak up more. We share more. So that actually could be a positive, I guess, that comes out of the evolution of crime and the subject matter itself. Yeah, I think so. Covering serious topics like assassination attempts and serial killers, uh, you know, of course, has got to be mentally intense. How do you keep your emotional impact from delving into the dark stories that you cover? And has those stories, have they changed your perspective in any way in your personal life? Yeah, you know, I think... A big part of of why I ended up leaving CBS News and and Forty Eight Hours in 2022 was feeling like I was I was burned out on uh, the constant pace of working in true crime television. You know, one of the things that was normal this was a normal daily thing. We would get this daily email with all the murder headlines in America. Oh God! <laughs> into our inbox. Yeah, this is like you know, I'm drinking my morning coffee and it's just headline, headline, headline of all the latest murders. And it's new every day. 
every day there's a new, you know, 40, 50 headlines. And it can really, um, you know, it's a lot for anyone. And so there's there's a lot of different ways to handle it, you know, and to go about it. And for me, I just I realized I had reached my limit of being exposed to that much. You know, I'm still interested in true crime. I'm, you know, obviously it's still a part of my life, but I'm much more selective on the cases that I cover um, and getting to do, you know, one case at a time with my podcast, you know, is is incredible because I can really focus on that case and not get, you know, overwhelmed by just the the wide variety, you know, of of murder that goes on. And so, yeah, you know, I've I've had to establish my own limits and recognize like, you know, I can't report on every single murder. I can't help every victim's family, you know, find their voice. Like I I have to just what's the phrase bloom where you're planted, right? And so here I am in Texas, right? So I really focus on unsolved cases that that happen in Texas. That's kind of my wheelhouse. And I think it'll keep me busy for a very long time. You know, I, I look at Texas families and I, I look at cases like that and and I, I try to, you know, help where I can. And I think being local and having that connection, you know, really does uh, make a difference, you know, in the comfort level of, of the families. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's an aspect that people might not, you know, think about really. Because when you're into something, you're so engrossed, you're sometimes not realizing the effects that it's having on you. And I appreciate your honesty. You recently received news of a book deal with Ben Bella for your memoir, Killer Story, which reveals the facts behind true crime TV based on your experiences working as an investigative crime reporter. Like I mentioned, and you mentioned for CBS News, 48 hours and 60 minutes. I told you, I absolutely love the title of your book, Killer Story. I think it's perfect. (laughs) What does that book deal mean to you, though? And like, you know, I know the book's not going to be coming out till 2025, but can you give listeners uh, a teaser of any kind? Of course. And and thank you so much. You know, that you're you sound as excited about it as I am. So I love that. I am. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm I'm learning that it takes longer to make a book than a baby. <laughs> I had no idea. I feel like I've been writing this book in my head for a long time. And, you know, it's really stems from the conversations that I would have with people, you know, when I, they'd ask, what do you do for a living? And I'd say, oh, I'm a producer on the true crime television show 48 Hours, and they would just have a million questions for me. And no one really seemed to know what it was like to work in true crime television. Uh, Well, everyone was watching true crime TV, but no one's ever been behind the scenes. And, you know, the questions, how did you get that story? How did you get that killer to give you that jailhouse interview? You know, where did that, uh, you know, evidence come from? Because the trial hadn't happened yet. How is that in your episode? You know, now that I I wasn't at CBS anymore. I was I was free to, you know, sort of go back through my my greatest hit cases and and talk about uh you know what it took to get these killer stories. And I um I've been writing writing out like my favorite cases and my most memorable ones and and so I'm crafting the manuscript and and I'm looking forward to, you know, sharing it with people and very interested, you know, in the 
the conversations that will come, you know, from that. But yeah, it covers, you know, my time there, my journey from local media into national, you know, true crime television. And a big feature is the battle that goes on for every major true crime story between 48 Hours on CBS, Dateline NBC, and ABC 2020. Because if we know about a story, so do they. And it is truly a battle royale every time for the characters, for the evidence, for access, who's going to air first. You know, it's a drama that plays out every week, uh, but we're the only ones that know about it. If you're if you're a producer on one of those shows, you know, you're the only ones that know that we're all, you know, there's, oh, people think there's moles at the various shows who leak air dates and production schedules and and it is, you know, somewhat incestuous in that people will work for one show for five, ten years and then go work for the other one. You know, what are they bringing with them whenever they change teams? You know, the story behind the story, I think, is is sometimes more interesting than than the case itself. I love it. I always love a behind the scenes story and outlook. So, and again, you are so perfect for this. I, I cannot wait for your book to come out. And of course, uh, I will be giving listeners and everyone an update when you have that date, because I feel like it's going to be really good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I'd love to, when I, when I have it, it's all together. I, I'd love to come back on and we can just talk all about the book. Absolutely. You've got it. With that, we are going to bring our first episode of season three to a close. I'd like to thank Claire for sharing her bold journey and her teasers of what's coming up for her. To learn more about Claire and follow her true crime podcast, visit her IG page at Final Days on Earth. Again, I love the names of everything you come up with. (laughs) or her website, www.finaldaysonearth.com. These details are also in the Gal on the Go Unplugged show notes. Thank you, Claire. You are just amazing. Thanks, Kimberly. This was great. I'm really glad we, we got to have this conversation. Oh, I appreciate you kicking off this season. And until next time, remember, listeners, be curious, be kind, and be bold.